0: Welcome back to Working Out the Inside. This is episode 13, Working on Deep Anxiety in Psychotherapy. I'm Andrew Nargawala of Advanced Psychotherapy and Healing Associates in Creskill, New Jersey. For those who are new to the podcast, the title comes from my experience that most people, if you tell them there's a systematic plan for addressing their physical needs diet, exercise, a social support system, including classes and a personal trainer to guide them. Virtually no one would think that's strange. In fact, they would take it for granted. But if you suggest there's a similar process for psychological issues, people tend to question or doubt it, believing that mental health issues are more mysterious, less susceptible to being treated in a regular, knowable process. The same thing with medication. The same people who would take medication for a physical ailment without question can be very resistant to taking psychotropic medication. This all gets back to the double standard we still have in this culture, the stigma of being treated for psychological issues. I hope that this podcast, in its small way, helps dispel some of the mystery and the doubt, and encourages people to seek help. We've never known so much about how to treat mental health conditions, both with psychotherapy and medication, and I hope more people reach out and take advantage of that help. Today's episode is another great listener request, how we treat anxiety in psychotherapy, what is the effect on ourselves and our loved ones of prolonged anxiety, what level of anxiety is normal, and how do we separate more superficial anxiety from a deeper kind. Some of the commonly diagnosed anxiety disorders are generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and phobias. Let's start with phobias. These are irrational, outer proportion fears of a specific trigger. It could be fear of heights, fear of flying, fear of certain kinds of animals or insects. And the key is that the fear usually causes the person to limit himself or herself, to withdraw from certain activities. Usually phobias are the most on-the-surface fears, meaning you can be perfectly well-adjusted but still have develop one or more phobias as reactions to certain stimuli or situations. One kind of treatment that's popular in working with phobias is exposure therapy, where the patient is slowly exposed over time to the trigger until it doesn't elicit the same reaction of fear. Short-acting benzodiazepine medications such as Xanax or Ativan, or even a longer-acting one such as Valium can also help for the immediate feelings of panic. Of course, a therapist or psychiatrist should rule out first that the client's reaction is not due to trauma, some deeper wounding, as opposed to just an irrational fear. Panic disorder can manifest in what people describe as panic attacks, the overwhelming fear that can feel so disabling. There can be a biological predisposition to panic, or it can stem from the phobic reaction we just described, or there could be a deeper source such as past abuse or trauma. Relaxation techniques, meditation, breathing exercises, yoga, these can all be helpful in addition to the short-acting medications I mentioned and longer-acting ones I'm gonna talk about in a minute. Many times, the greatest fear in panic attacks is the fear of the fear itself, to paraphrase Franklin Roosevelt. It becomes a loop where the fear isn't about any other specific thing except the terror of the panic attack itself returning. Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, can be helpful in redirecting and changing these thought patterns, as the name implies if we can change the way the patient perceives and thinks about the situation, his or her behavior, including feeling stimulated, to being stimulated to feel the panic, can change as well. Generalized anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder are common conditions treated in psychotherapy. Some measure of anxiety is normal. For example, feeling your adrenaline level go up before an important meeting or test. Some social anxiety is normal, like the anticipation you might feel on a first date. When the anxiety is persistent and limiting, then it can be something that requires treatment. Also, when it's out of proportion to the events at hand, you know you shouldn't feel this nervous or panicky for something, but you can't help it. These kind of anxiety can be isolating. We limit contact with others because of our own fears and doubts, and that isolation leaves us vulnerable to even greater anxiety and even depression. I mentioned some longer-acting medications, too. Those are the SSRIs, the antidepressants, which really all can be called anti-anxiety medication as well. They're not the fast-acting ones that you would take if you were having an immediate panic attack. You needed that help right away. These are things that develop a baseline where you let the medication build up in your system, and it provides that longer-lasting overall help with the anxiety. Uh, definitely for something like generalized anxiety disorder, it be, could be very helpful. Uh, so there's, and they can be combined. You can be taking the SSRIs, uh, one of those medications, and then also have on hand uh, the the quick acting medication for when you really need it. There's a deeper way to treat anxiety at its core, and that is addressing one's essential identity or core self. Kohut developed self psychology as a discipline. But his approach was more analytical in that it involved bathing the client in fairly unquestioning unconditional support and encouragement it's still a brilliant analysis of personality structures but modern therapy is much more interactive a mutual working together that involves looking at and possibly changing any aspect of the client's life an integrative approach that brings together many strands and schools of psychotherapy is often very helpful in achieving the real goals of therapy, that the client is happy, at peace, knowing essentially who he or she is and understanding the difference between what we need and what we want. We all want so many things, but what do we really need? Many years ago, a client came to me and said, if I move to Colorado, I'll kill myself. And I said, tell me what you mean. And the young man had gone for a job convention and started feeling incredibly disoriented and panicky and anxious and just could not bear being where he was and had to come home uh, to New Jersey. And you know, when I asked him about it, I said, was it something about Colorado? Was it something about the people, the, the job fair that triggered you? He said, no, he didn't understand why he had such a reaction. And over time, what we discovered was that uh, it really was about these deeper issues of self, about who he was and how he saw himself and saw the world. And when he took himself out of his regular uh, life, his regular world uh, in New Jersey, he really didn't know what to do and most importantly didn't know who he was. And so our job in treatment was to get at that deeper identity and provide him with a sense of self that, you know, he disclosed and he discovered it wasn't something put on him like a role. It was unearthing who he was underneath the various roles that he played and that allowed him to feel more secure and less anxious a similar story more recently of a client had very disabling panic attacks they would last at least a day or two where he just could not do anything and i noticed that you know i'd ask him what were you thinking before each of these Panic attacks, and it would be some kind of question about who he was was he a good father? Who would he be if he didn't have the money that he had? uh, You know, questions like that about who he was. And once we were able to find the answers, and answers that made sense to him and reassured him, and that he thought were realistic the panic attack subsided. So when it's not something more on the surface, like we described with the phobias, when it's something deeper, knowing who you are, learning who you are, is very important. And um, we see more and more clients come to us now with these kind of questions. I had a client recently come and he said, you know, I like my current therapist. He's very good at problem solving, but he doesn't look at why I do what I do. And he said, I don't know who I am. Now, of course, these clients are not psychotic. They know who they are in a basic sense, of course. They know their names and where they live. And they're often very successful in one area of their life. Uh, Might be work or relationships or family. But then in another area, they feel powerless, uh, maybe socially or, uh, you know, in any of those areas, they feel, I-, I just don't know who I am underneath all these roles, because we ask people to play all these external roles, but we don't investigate enough who, what the essential core self is, so people feel adrift, they feel lost many times, and that can result in that tremendous anxiety. In a way, the Buddha was the first psychotherapist. Learning to meditate is a way to quiet, quiet one's mind, to be able to be more deeply aware of oneself and one's surroundings. So it's not an escape from the world. It's actually bringing you much closer to the world. As the Buddhist teacher Jack Cornfield said, We don't learn how to meditate to become better meditators. We learn in order to one day achieve true mindfulness in our everyday lives, a perspective we can take to Colorado or to the moon or anywhere. Daily, ever-present mindfulness is having a kind of equanimity, where we are very aware of our surroundings and of people and conflicts and joy, everything but we are fully in the moment, not trapped in the past or grasping after the future. It's not a cold detachment. Paradoxically, it's a warm, connected detachment. It's a seeming contradiction, but it's really a living dialectic with both poles, actually the many sides of life, not just two poles, but many sides, many aspects, all of these being present at one time. So we see what's happening, we feel it, but we also keep it in perspective, knowing what we can change and take responsibility for, and what we can't. As I've said in other episodes, psychotherapy is what happens in a room once or twice a week. Treatment is every healthy thing we are doing for ourselves, including therapy, working out physically, eating right, being social, making friends, having interests and hobbies, being creative in whatever we do. Every client should be continually assessed every session on at least two levels. How the client is doing today would be the first level. Any major crises, any major successes. We always want to know the good too. We want a balanced view. We don't want to just know about problems, we want to see the good, and also how he or she is doing on the self-scale. Has their self-esteem improved? Has their confidence improved? Can they believe more good things about themselves, especially internal qualities, not just external achievements? Isolation is a risk factor for anxiety and many mood states and negative behaviors. Isolation does not necessarily mean you are alone. For example, you can be lonely in a big city surrounded by people. Isolation means you are not making healthy connections with the people around you. If you ask kids, for example, if they have friends, many kids will say yes, but it's important whether they really connect with at least some of those kids see them outside of school, build a relationship over time, not just seeing them in the hall or at practice for a team. The same is true for adults. Are they making a deeper connection? A lot of social anxiety comes from a vulnerable sense of self. We fear people will judge us, see through us. We imagine everyone is focused on us when it's just as likely they are worried about how we are seeing them, or they even, they're not even paying attention to us. If you gradually build a more supple, strong, flexible, structured sense of self, and an external support system of friends, family, and professionals, you can enter any social situation with pride and security. We can't know what the people will be like in Colorado or any place. We don't know what the situation will be like, Uh, but we can accept that some people will get us, some people won't care, and some will never understand us, and that's okay. That's true for everyone. It means we're human. Now, for loved ones, it's often very tough to watch someone struggle with anxiety. Uh, And and to often feel helpless, to know what to say, what to do. One thing that's not helpful is saying things like, just calm down, or it's all in your head. Uh, The person is trying to calm themselves. They know it's in their head. They often feel very guilty, uh, because at least if they, they feel in their minds, if I had some real physical ailment, like I have a cast on my arm, then at least people can see that. And when you're suffering on the inside, you know, no one can see that. And many times uh, people don't realize on the flip side how much when they vent and they talk about this, that it hurts the people around them. Uh, not deliberately, obviously, but I remember in my own life at one point when I was venting to people that were close to me, and, and a, couple said, a couple of them said, you know, they were very upset and very worried for me. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm just venting. I didn't realize I was having that effect. And, you know, it's, it's good that we provide them reassurance and get our own help. And also that if you're, you're wondering what does work with people, that kind of reassuring message of, I believe that you're suffering. I believe that you're going through this anxiety. I will do anything to help you in the sense of getting help, not trying to, to do that yourself, but to say, let's get you some professional help. This is really troubling you. And reminding them that you still see the positive and the good qualities that you've always seen, despite the anxiety, because people can feel very diminished and feel they have nothing to offer because they feel so weak. They feel uh, overwhelmed by the fear and the anxiety. So that kind of positive message. And as we've said before, simply listening, simply being present, even if you can't think of anything to say, that's okay. Because most people are not looking for an immediate solution right out of your mouth, like, you know, tell me how to solve this. They're just looking for someone to understand and to listen. And that's something any of us can do. Perfectionism is incredibly anxiety-producing and an enemy of happiness. Diversity is a great friend of happiness. In other words, having many kinds of external support mixed with internal self-acceptance. If I said to you, change the past, you would quite rightly say that you can't. If I said change the future, you would again say that you can't. But we all spend a lot of time trying to do just that. We shouldn't forget the past, but we can't be bound by it. We can try to influence the future, but we can't control it. Buddhists call that grasping, trying to hold on to something that can't be controlled or captured. We only really have this moment. And there's considerable peace in that. I've had a number of clients who've said that they live in fear of people seeing who they really are, and some even leave jobs or relationships in anticipation of this terrible unmasking. Now, it's a spectrum. Not everyone has this fear to the extreme, but instead some form of it. At the other end, is unconditional self-acceptance, healthy self-love. This is not narcissism. Narcissists often seem very powerful and egotistical, but this is like the narcissist myth, seeing your image reflected back externally, not internally. Narcissists have very tiny egos, not big, healthy egos. So they overcompensate with false boasts and claims and aggressive behavior trying to keep you off balance so you won't see how deeply fragile they are on the inside. No one in that state can be truly happy or have peace. They can never be wrong. They can never take responsibility. They have to imagine themselves as superior. Hmm, we might think of an example regularly in the news, but uh, never mind, let's not go there. <laughs> There's a whole classification, uh, there was a whole classification of diagnoses called AXIS to diagnoses. They they wiped them out of the, uh, the category, out of the DSM-5, the current one. It's kind of our diagnostic manual. So they, they stopped categorizing them separately, but uh, these these were called personality disorders that can be traced to these fractured or undeveloped senses of self. I wished they would have called them identity or self disorders to make the source clearer, but they're psychological, not biological manifestations. And when a client wants to work with you, and you can weather the storm that they're going to unleash. They're going to try to push you away at first because they're very afraid, again, about you seeing them for who they are. But if they can open to you, and you can set good boundaries with them, and you can develop that work with them, uh, they can make real progress. Cognitive behavioral therapy attempts to change negative thought patterns those self-critical tapes in our head that tell us that we're less than we should be but the work must go deeper than just changing the thought patterns the thoughts go back to what we believe that's where they start if we believe being perfect is possible if we treasure up the negative or abusive comments of others, if we refuse to celebrate ourselves as we are, then addressing the thoughts alone is superficial and won't make lasting change. An integrative therapy is best, combining elements of psychodynamic therapy, meaning that the past influences our present, object relations, how our relationships help shape us, dialectical behavioral therapy, including finding that Buddhist middle ground, uh, the middle path between the opposite poles within us. And as we mentioned, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, self-psychology, all of these working together are helpful and necessary. It's kind of like having a palette to choose from and then having all the colors work together. And looking beyond the mind to see the person in situation, a common social work strategy who and what makes up their external support system how does this system need to be developed or strengthened we can't do it alone and we shouldn't we can develop our creativity our individual interests and we don't have to be artists to be creative some people cook some people take or make pictures some people play sports or they exercise The things we do as labors of love and expressions of parts of ourselves. Some people, dare I say it, make podcasts. When we have great diversity in our sense of self, we are less afraid of losing one part. There are so many parts to sustain us through troubled times, like diversifying in the stock market, not putting all your money in one stock and living and dying on that stock you say no i'm diversified i have many choices so if something falls away there's still many others to pick up that slack Uh, think of how ready you would be for new challenges new friends new relationships new work new play if you had that diversity in your life it's very joyful in the moment and in the long term, it is happiness itself. The goal is not to have zero anxiety. It's to have an essential peace that makes any anxiety tolerable, bearable, not overwhelming and isolating. We're free to experience our better selves from a place of loving kindness. It's hard to be calm when you're constantly on guard and hiding. To be our own Buddha means to be joyfully aware of what's happening around us, taking responsibility for what we should, but detaching from what is not in our power to affect. When the Buddha was asked who he was, he replied, awake. To be awake to the simplicity and the grandness both of our lives, uh, the, the, the simplicity and grandness both in our lives is what the poet's Whitman and Wordsworth understood. Whitman, for example, celebrated himself and others in a state of constant rapture. He didn't live in an ivory tower. He saw and was involved in the absolute horrors of the Civil War, perhaps our bloodiest, most tragic of all tragic wars. But it didn't stop him from noticing everything the smallest and the grandest aspects of nature and of human nature. This kind of joy is available to all of us. The Buddha said, don't follow me, be your own Buddha. To be awake to the world means we have to have done that work of developing our identity, learning, and enjoying in who we are, working out the inside. And for many, many centuries before there was such a thing as therapy, people did that kind of working out and did that kind of inner self-treatment. And they'd call it philosophy or religion or spirituality. And, um, you know, we have the opportunity now to do that work with someone in therapy. But however you do that work, because many, many people won't get that opportunity or won't take that opportunity. I still think it's important work to do, to think about who we are and why we're here and what's important to us and how we imagine our present and how we might influence our future without trying to control it. Uh, I wish you that peace and that wonderful journey And I invite your comments and your questions and your suggestions. I'm so grateful that you're going on this continuing journey with me. And I will see you next time.